it's as expensive to manufacture in China as, as it is in most U.S. cities now. So uh, really, oh, Akron and Shanghai are about equal. Uh, so I think a lot of companies, if, if they're looking at this, they're saying it's never going to be the same. And there are alternatives. And I think when you talk about reshoring, I think we're talking about reshoring regionally. Right. Reshoring to North America as opposed to just the United States. Yeah. Western Hemisphere. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Our guest on the show today is Dr. Andrew R. Thomas, author and professor of business at the University of Akron. According to Andrew, today reshoring is finally happening. After decades of sending manufacturing work to China, Western companies are finally realizing that strategy is often not the answer for generating better profits. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graff. P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. I am very honored to be with Dr. Andrew Thomas, Associate Professor of Marketing and International Business and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Transportation and Security. He's a business professor at Akron University. He's also a best-selling author. He's written 24 books. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, Noah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is fantastic. I'm always looking for experts such as Andrew. Try I call you Andrew or Andy? Andrew's fine. I'd be kind of reluctant to hear that word expert associated with me. Uh, you know, I have thoughts <laughs> like all folks do. I, I expertise, so it kind of scares me when I get associated with that word, especially given the recent performance of experts over say, the last 20 years. They haven't done very well. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. You're probably better off staying humble. I'm I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert at anything no, either. Never Never would. Never would. Let's uh, let's just get into some meaty topics that people really want to know about. And, you know, supply chain is really a, a big thing. Supply chain and reshoring, et cetera. So my first question, what have we learned in the last year as far as supply chain, you know, in the second year of the pandemic? You know, we I interviewed a guy, another professor last year uh, who had written about the supply chain during the pandemic, a professor named Yossi Sheffi. Yeah, well known. Yeah, I'm reflecting on some of the things he said. I'm sure if he wrote another book this year, it would probably say some different things. So what are some of the things that stick out at you as far as we've learned about supply chain and various other related things in the last year? Well, it's interesting, uh, Noah, you mentioned that because I'm, uh, I'm in the process. I'm about three or four months away from finishing my next book. 
which is called The Canal of Panama and Globalization. How long does it take you to write a book? Uh, a couple of years, a year and a half, two years. So this one's taken longer because I wasn't exactly sure what was going to happen with the pandemic. So I was supposed to have it done in fact, this week, but I got an extension from the publisher into the spring. So I'm looking at this, at these issues. And, uh, and, and again, I haven't looked at this. This isn't the first time I've looked at this. This has been a, a lifelong pursuit. And I'm a resident of Panama. So I, I get a kind of an international perspective from the supply chain, at least by learning more about the canal and talking to the folks who are running the canal. I know a lot of, a lot of people down there, golf partners, neighbors. Uh, so wow, it sounds like you really like Panama. I do. My wife's Panamanian. So we've been down there for a uh, while and uh, have a home and go to the golf club. And it's just it's a great time. The uh, what I've seen and I'm looking this longitudinally is that a lot of the race to China initially we thought was uh, I think the conventional wisdom was it was just these companies that were being pressured by Wall Street or if even if they were private firms, they were being pressured by investors. Would you say a lot of the rage at China? Uh, well, no, the rage, maybe. But a lot of the, uh, you know, the belief in China, a lot of the belief that with the reason we went to China, that we American manufacturing went went to China was a lot of it was or the vast majority of it was for greed, for avarice. Uh, and I think that that was that at least that's the conventional wisdom that the manufacturers were uh, were looking to just take advantage of cheap labor. I remember in our plant in China in, in the early 90s, you know, a worker who showed up on time met their quota for six days in a row. Their benefit or bonus at the end of the week was they got to take a hot shower at the plant. So I think, you know, the conventional wisdom was we bring China into the WTO, or, we, or at least we're prepping them for the WTO in the 90s. They came in in 01. But in this meantime, smart companies are saying, hey, we got to go to China to manufacture because it's so cheap. We're going to maximize revenue streams, focus on our core competencies here at home, let, you know, let all those other things be done out outsourced, offshored, you know, the kind of the Jack Welch GE model. And maybe before that, there was a leap to Mexico with NAFTA coming on board. Again, it was believed, I think by most of the observers, the conventional wisdom was companies were doing this, business leaders were doing this to, to, to maximize profits. I don't think the evidence is true for that. I think, again, there were companies that did this. I think there were uh, maybe larger companies. Why, then why did they do it? Yeah. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough in terms of understanding the, the global context. And I think a lot of it had to do, and the evidence is clear, I've written several books on this. Uh, the evidence is clear that a lot of manufacturers, particularly small and medium-sized manufacturers, which are the vast majority of manufacturers in America, in this period from the 90s up until you know, very recently, they were being pushed to go to these lower cost manufacturing markets because what was happening was a change in the dynamics of the American business model. And what had happened uh, over a period of, say, about 30 years uh, was there was this desire, and I think it was preached from business schools, business professors, the consultant world, you know, maximize efficiencies and focus on core competence. That was a staple. Core competence theory was a staple of business education, uh, really starting in, in the late 80s, early 90s, coming out of Japan. There was an article in Harvard Business Review by Gary Hamill that talked about what Toyota had done. Sure. That's what I was thinking, the Toyota model. Yeah, the Toyota model, you know, outsource what you don't do well, and you focus on what you do best. And what that did was it got in the minds of a lot of business leaders and business professors and others that, you know, sales and distribution is one of those things that's it's a hassle. If, say, for example, and I'm in Akron, Ohio, for the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. In this period, they got 5,000 independent exclusive dealers they're managing in the United States uh, that sell Goodyear tires to the public. And that's a hassle. And they've been doing that for a century with these independent exclusive dealers. And in a way, in your local town, if, if you wanted to put Goodyear tires on your car for a century, you had to go to the independent Goodyear dealer and he'd do it for you. 
And then they woke up one day under the guise of, I think, maximizing efficiency, core competence theory. And Goodyear decided with a stroke of a pen, you know, we don't want these 5,000 dealers. They're a problem. It's 5,000 purchase orders, inventory management, invoicing, all the stress that comes with that. What if we just had one or two major players? And that became Walmart and Sam's Club. And that happened to companies, big companies uh, uh, made that decision to do that. Uh, and I think the small companies that supported the bigger manufacturers through the supply chain, they, they ended up bearing the brunt because what happens? And we called this the distribution. You got no choice. And so you kind of follow what, what goes on upstream in the supply chain. And, you know, at that time in the late uh, 80s, 90s, you know, Walmart was a fraction of, of JCPenney and Sears and everybody else. And, and Sam Walton, to his credit, said, hey, these manufacturers want to give me control over their products. I'll take it. Uh, and Costco, of course, did it. And later, Amazon's done it online. Uh, let the manufacturer build their product and then we'll handle, in other words, outsource of sales and distribution. And that's great for a while. You can track companies that did these deals where they where they they cannibalized or they even got rid of their exclusive distribution network that existed for a long time. And now they're selling to one of these mega distributors or mega customers that's 50, 60, 70% of all their revenue. And then what does Walmart do after year three or four or five? They just begin to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze those prices down to a point where the manufacturer wakes up one morning and they said, we cannot make money doing the way we've been doing business forever. Meaning a lot of the manufacturing occurring here in the United States, whether it's furniture, whether it's textiles, whether it's tires, whether it's products that were manufactured in the United States for a long time. So executives are looking at, at this formula saying, okay, we're locked in now to these really dysfunctional sales agreements, sales relationships that we have with these mega customers that are squeezing us year after year after year. Can't grow a top line. How are we going to survive? How are we going to still make money, justify shareholder investment confidence? Well, we'll go to Mexico. Well, the first thing they did is they went from the northern United States, which is where we are, union strong. They went to the southern United States. And then when they realized even that it was too expensive in the southern United States, they went to Mexico. And then China came on board in the late you know, 90s, WTO 2000s. And all of a sudden, it's like, OK, we're just going to chase the cheapest. That became the business strategy. Wall Street rewarded it. Uh, it didn't mean that these companies were incredibly profitable. In fact, if you just, again, we'll go back to Goodyear as an example. We highlight them in both of the books we wrote on the subject, Tim Wilkinson and I did. Uh, you know, their stock was bouncing around before they cannibalized their, their, their exclusive dealer network at about 60 bucks a share. Solid industrial company. They did the deal with, with Walmart. They got rid of their dealers. The shot stock went up to like 120 bucks a share for a period of time. Everybody got rich, senior management, shareholders. And then they started getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And today, Goodyear is a $20 share company. It'll never be more than that. It's a shell of itself. And the manufacturing for a lot of Goodyear tires is where? It's no longer in the United States. It's even products that are sold in the United States. Those products aren't made here anymore. They're made in Mexico. They're made in China. They're made in Malaysia. They're made in much cheaper places. So in the end, uh, what we've done is we've created these supply chains. I think, again, that we're not driven by greed, because if they were driven by greed, it'd be really easy to reshore these. Uh, we could bring these back and, and, and pay American workers comparable, maybe a little bit more wages you know, here in the States. The problem is you still have these dysfunctional models because everybody's still selling to Walmart. They're still selling to Costco. They're still selling to Amazon. In fact, we've seen small and medium-sized sales and distribution firms get wiped out because of COVID. I think this is the big business story of the last couple of years, where these big distributors they control more and more of the manufactured goods that are coming in here. And you can't make it here. You can't pay American wages to be able to sell through these channels. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some companies that did it just to get rich. Uh, you know, I, I think, though, the Goodyear eventually, them, Rubbermaid, Levi's, I mean, there, there's some very you know, known brands that have done this and they end up saying, OK, now what do we do? 
Well, what we've found also is, um, I don't know if I explained it to you before, in addition to doing the podcast and the journalism, we have a business selling machine tools, specific kind, uh, turning equipment and some older machines, um, screw machines. And this year, a lot of the ones we sold, we sold to Mexico because Mexico actually has more of a proficiency to run these machines than in the U.S. U.S., the people, first of all, it's just easier to find skilled workers that want to work in a CNC factory that's less loud and prettier and they get to work with computers. Whereas in Mexico, you know, they still have some skills and they have people that, you know, are just like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. If there's good money, I'll work on those machines. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we've established that it's it's difficult because there's work over there and there's paradigms and it's hard to shift the relationships people have. Nevertheless, a lot of people are telling us that reshoring is occurring or at least, you know, certain jobs that they might have thought, all right, I'll, I can make it cheaper overseas. They're realizing the supply chain is terrible. So this is what they're saying, that that's why they're bringing it back. What are you seeing as far as people manufacturing coming back? And maybe you know specifically about our sector, precision machining. Well, I, th- I think the example you gave, uh, you know, with regards to Mexico, I think that's what you're going to see globally is this rush towards regionalization, uh, where uh, supply chains at distance, physical distance, just is, uh, adds to complexity, it increases risk. That's just a fundamental reality. In, in, Which is in, so in, strange because in a way, everything is so close, you know, and you have uh, Freeman's world is flat. And that that is true to some extent when you talk about certain kinds of technology. But at the same time, it's, it's interesting how certain goods right now, it seems like it's gone the other way. We're realizing that it never did go one way. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we, we just assume that just because, it's, you know, what's the old financial adage, you know, prior performance doesn't guarantee future uh, results. And I think that that was the expectation. Everybody was just kind of floating along thinking this is all wonderful and great. Look what we've done. We've overcome these distances, all of these nuances. And nobody really thought for a minute, well, wait a minute. Number one, was it a good idea? Uh, and I, I argue it wasn't a good idea. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of the economic impact that we've saw, you know, we've seen in the United States, Europe, uh, the response, the political response in, in elections, I think. I think you can tie a lot of that to, you know, these decisions. And then, of course, then you layer on a, a global pandemic, which we knew uh, was was likely to occur sometime probably in, in, in the near future. And of course, we haven't even factored in war. War seems to have been engineered out of, of the calculus in so many ways, major nation states at war, at least. You know, we were just kind of blindly thinking this is just going to be a, a way it's going to last and, and be forever because this is what it's been the last, you know, several decades. And we wake up one day and all of a sudden local really matters. And, you know, who, you know, where you live, uh, your local officials, uh, your ability to you know, access goods and services. I mean, that really matters now. And not just in an American sense, in a very global sense. This is, this is a global phenomenon. And I think that notion, I think you're seeing it in Europe. I talked to my friends in Eastern Europe, uh, Central Europe, Romania, uh, Hungary, Poland, and they're saying there's, there's, there are discussions right now of relocating a lot of the manufacturing that had been sent out of Europe back to, again, that regional component where you, at least you can put it on a truck and bring it in from Warsaw into um, Western Europe. 
Well, is work, say, coming back from Germany back to Poland or stuff like that or? No, coming back from China to, you know, the work that was sent from, you know, from manufacturers, you know, who are in the same problem in Europe with these mega customers, these mega distributors. A lot of that went to China, too. So I think you're seeing those jobs not going to come back to Western Europe. It's too expensive. Uh, but they're going to come back to, to Eastern and Central Europe, and it's already happening. When I've spent time with customers, say in Germany or Italy, a lot of their best people came from Poland because they're like, those guys over there, they knew how to run these machines. They have the right work ethic. It's probably sort of like Hispanic people in the United States. Yeah. Or in Mexican play, sure. You know, they know how to work. And uh, the other thing that's happened is I, I think that that's impacting this is that the, the, the workforce, which is always brought up in any discussion, it seems, of manufacturing, I've, I've experienced, at least in the United States, you know, we have this incredibly weird economy right now with, with people, 11 million jobs, people not either looking for work, not wanting to work. You know, I, sp- I spent a lot of time outside the United States the last couple of years. I can tell you, this is a rare phenomenon. The rest of the world is a mess with regards to employment. I mean, they, the world's taking this on the head. We we threw out $10 trillion from the helicopter and it kind of fell wherever it did. And, didn't they uh, do that? Didn't they do that in Western Europe as well? They did it in Western Europe to an extent, but I can tell you, for example, in Panama, let's just give you an example, the, the richest country in Latin America, which lives about the same standard as Slovenia, the Czech Republic, Public Slovakia. Really? Uh, Panama what, is. Oh, yeah. And what they got there was 50 bucks a month on a uh, government card that you could use at the grocery store. There was no unemployment insurance. There were no bailouts for businesses. What they did there, and this is what a lot of the world did, is they just froze loans. So if you had a mortgage, credit card, auto loan, commercial loan, commercial invoice you had to pay, effectively March 2020, and it's supposed to be starting now January 1st, you didn't have to pay. So nobody's paid on anything. Nobody's made a rent payment. Nobody's made a car payment, a credit card payment. Now, starting in 22, and this is the case in a lot of the world, now you have to start paying your debts. So how were they doing it? Was the government just paying the rent for people? No, nobody paid the rent. They paid your water bill. They paid your electric bill, but you didn't pay your- What about the people that owned the buildings or- Deal with it. I mean, that's the world. I mean, that that's the vast majority of the world when this thing hit, but people just stopped paying. So anybody that owned land or buildings and that was their way of making a living, they were the ones that got screwed. Well, and, and the people who lost their jobs. I mean, unemployment in Panama went from about 6% to 40%. And of course, you have a significant amount of people in, in the informal economy anyway. So they just, they were always hanging on. And now they're, they're if, if they're able to hang on, it's a good thing. But what are you seeing around the world now? You're seeing crime, drug dealing, stress, tension, all kinds. You know, again, I think if we look at this from an American perspective with regards to the pandemic. More, more than there was before? Oh, exponentially more. Exponentially more. I mean, I've said it for a long time. The bomb went off last year. The shockwaves are just being felt irrespective of the virus and managing the virus, it's all of these other elements. When you lock down countries that don't have the social safety net that we have in Western Europe, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and many of these lockdowns were even more intense. Uh, You know, Panama against Latin America, they locked down. I mean, you couldn't leave your house for almost six months. Uh, this this was nothing compared to what we anywhere in the United States. And again, we're not shoving trillions of dollars to these people out the window like we did to citizens in, in the rich countries. So the gap between the emerging world and the rich world has is, is gotten much more massive. And all of the societal impacts are just beginning to fall out. I can tell you, in most of Latin America, kids haven't been in school since November of 19. Oh, my God. 
This is December of 21 and kids still aren't in school. They're doing nothing. They're not doing Zoom classes. Well, they're watching it on TV. The national television networks have the classes. So the kids are watching their teachers on television four or five hours a day. Right. For what that's worth. Well, mom and dad, you know, likely now have almost nothing. You can it have been locked down. You can imagine the societal stress and strains. And, and so put, make a business element here. You got people who want to work, uh, who need to work. I mean, I just remodeled my house for the second time in Panama, and everybody talks about how terrible customer service is down there. It was phenomenal. A guy showing up, if they're getting paid, they're showing up early. They're, they're staying so late. So things are going now. They're starting to. But again, the shockwaves for this are going to be felt for a generation or two. And so when we talk about workforce challenges here, if, if you're looking and saying, okay, I want to I want to set up a CNC operating place somewhere, you know, Mexico is going to be a win. Panama would be a win. Guatemala, Honduras, and they're proximate. They're, if, if you want to do a lot of this supply chain manufacturing that we're talking about here, supporting, you know, bigger manufacturers through the value chain, uh, you know, there's a lot of that's not going to take place in China as much, I think, and more, much more is going to be regionalized, whether it's in Latin America or whether it's going to be in Eastern and Central Europe. But China is still going to have plenty manufacturing just for their own people sure their own you know and there's it, are they and are they outsourcing to say vietnam yeah it's expensive it's as expensive to manufacture in china as, as it is in most u.s cities now so uh really oh akron and, and uh, shanghai are about equal shanghai is about the same as it costs in akron but the wage of somebody in akron is going to be way higher than somebody in china yeah. Uh, although, uh, you know, that's that's just one cost. If you if you aggregate the cost, it's it's about the same. And then you add on top of it the risk, you know, the supply chain risk that we have to deal with now, you know, probably for many years to come. Uh, so uh, I, th- I think a lot of companies, if, if they're looking at this, they're saying it's never going to be the same. And there are alternatives. And I think when you talk about reshoring, I think we're talking about reshoring regionally. Reshoring to North America as opposed to just the United States. Yeah, Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Listeners, first, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at graphpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now back to the episode. Is the United States becoming more isolationist? I, I know you've you've written quite a bit about this. Yeah. I mean, and this is consistent of what we've been talking about. If you take it back to after World War II, where we were becoming sort of the, not the hegemon, but we were the ones that people were relying on to protect them, et cetera. Sure. Does that model still exist? <laughs> Because to me, it seems like it still exists, even though people are saying they don't want it to exist. Well, it's one of the great questions, I think, facing not just the United States. I think it's one of the the great questions facing the world in terms of what is the American commitment going to be going forward to the system that the Americans really set up in 1944? And I I don't want to give you a history lesson or your listeners a history lesson. I guess I'll probably have to at least to provide you use that great word context. There's always been within the American people a a strain of uh, we 
we we are a special nation. We should be out there uh, sharing our values and, and, and leading the world where we can. From the founding, we had some we had some of the founders were you know very evangelistic, thinking America is a unique place. And of course, as we entered the 19th century, and we really discovered what bounty we had here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the founders didn't quite know what we had. I think when we began to realize Lewis and Clark and all those explorations and beyond, and I even think Lincoln, if if, if you read Lincoln and his writings, he understood that there was something unique and different uh, about the United States that made it uh, almost inevitable that we will have a significant international presence. What that presence would look like, though, would, would be left to be determined. I think, though, that there were lots of folks, particularly in leadership positions, who looked back to Europe and saw the United States as maybe replacing Europe one day as the global shaper, if you will, of, of the way things are. And most Americans, again, don't really quite know this. In uh, July of 1944, remember, D-Day occurred in June of 1944. There was a conference that was held in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, of all places. And if you've heard of Bretton Woods, you might think about it in terms of a financial deal. You might think about it in terms of the creation of the World Bank and the IMF. But the, the Bretton Woods uh, experience was, was more than that. It was the United States bringing all of the representatives of the allied nations to the small town in, near Mount Washington in New Hampshire in the middle of the summertime to listen to what the, the United States, and this was led by by the State Department, by Franklin Roosevelt State Department. And these were very much, I don't want to use the term liberal because that word gets used badly in these days and age, but these were true liberals. These were New Deal Democrats, and they really believed that government intervention, government action can, can create a, a better world as they had done through the Depression, at least in their minds. And so with the president's blessing, President Roosevelt's blessing, the State Department representing the entire apparatus of the United States, laid out what the U.S. vision was going to be for the post-war world. What happened there, This and this is vital, and again, very poorly known by most people, is that the United States government was making guarantees to these representatives of the allied nations. In other words, this is what the United States is going to do with its power when the war is over, because we our immense manufacturing, our military capability, our economic might, it was going to be greater than any time in human history. We were going to lay out what we were going to do for the world. Was Germany at the Brayton Woods? No, they were not. Germany, of course, we're still fighting Germany. We're still fighting Japan. Right, right, obviously. Right. Yeah, and, and the Soviet, yeah, and the Soviet Union was invited. They didn't attend, but 65 other allied nations came. And there were future prime ministers of Canada and France and Australia there. It was kind of a who's who of, of, of the allied so nations. Even though France was under Nazi rule, they still- Free France. Lived. Free France sent some folks. Sure, and the Brits did. And of course, the institutions that were created from a financial perspective, the IMF, the World Bank, they were laid out. The dollar and the gold standard, that relationship was laid out there. But more importantly, and this was a gentleman's agreement. There, this wasn't voted on by the U.S. Congress. It got very little reporting. In, 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 the, in fact, there's only one New York Times reporter that was invited. It wasn't in New York or Chicago or, or San Francisco where you could get a good dinner and see a good show. It was in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. They, that was that was probably intentional. It was intentional, sure. And the idea was is that we are going to tell you what we're going to do with all this power that history has now given us. And we're also not going to vote uh, before the American people. We're not going to take this to the Senate. This is just going to be a gentleman's agreement between our allies well, and Ro- us. Roosevelt, Roosevelt was there? No, but it's uh, Henry Dexter White, uh, how, Henry Smith. And he was blessing. He this, was giving the is... blessing to the best of his ability. He was sick, of course, but this was a reflection of, of the U.S. And we gave really four guarantees to, to that audience. And these four guarantees remain in place today. If every world leader, every corporate leader has built these, these four guarantees into their calculus without even thinking about it. And what are they? Uh, they are, uh, number one, we're going to, um, we, the United States, if you become part of our new led American system post-war, we got your back on security. 
You don't have to spend money to rebuild your your militaries. We'll pay for it and we'll provide it. Uh, And this was offered not just to the allied nations, but to every nation who came into the American-led global capitalist system afterwards. So West Germany eventually came into the system. Japan came into the system. Former enemies came in. Italy uh, and eventually uh, Russia and its republics and China came into the system later on. Uh, And then the next item would be, we will provide you the capital to rebuild your economies, the massive uh, Marshall Plan in Europe, and there was even greater contributions to Japan and other nations. A lot of it through the World Bank, through the IMF later on, which were primarily American funded. Uh, We will give you these resources to rebuild your economy. And then of course, the fastest way to rebuild your economy is to make stuff, to manufacture things. Uh, How do you get people back to work quickly? We saw this in Japan, we saw this in China, get them making stuff, they got to sell it somewhere. So the third element was we're going to open up and we would expect you to do the same. We're going to open up our consumer market, the American consumer market, tax-free with no tariffs. Bring your stuff here, Japan. Bring your stuff here, Malaysia. Bring your stuff here, China. Sell your products. Compete with American workers in the American market for American consumers. And then lastly, of course, is we would ensure the supply chain security, primarily the maritime security of the oceans of the world by providing our Navy to the disposal of the world. And we would pay for supply chain security. And let, that, let's not minimize that. Uh, you know, prior to World War II, for an international business transaction to occur, there was about a 20 percent cost add on just to move it around the world because of, of concerns over security, piracy in particular. So that was no little thing that we now gave our Navy to the world to be able to protect the the shipping lanes. And again, the American taxpayer was on the hook for it. And this was all done very quietly. And the nations of the world said, yeah, we're in, we'll join the American-led system. And everybody except North Korea, Venezuela, and Cuba today, they're in. And every major corporation, even small, medium, large size, uh, they're all in. They just, everybody believes that this is going to last forever. And of course, you know, there was all this news about Trump when he got elected in 16 that, oh my goodness, he's going to change everything. Well, the American people, to go to your original question, Noah, the American people have been battling with this notion of empire since we started this journey back in 1944. And it really became even more divisive when the Cold War ended. It was one thing to be able to sell this to the American people saying, we have to stop communism. We have to go to Korea to defend South Korea because it's part of Bretton Woods. It wasn't said that way, but that was implied. That's another reason we went to Vietnam. We have to, we have to protect our allies against uh, their enemies. Uh, and that was all done under that, uh, going back to that World War II era. And then the Soviet Union's defeated, global communism's over. Then, then China moves into the global economy. And it looks like, why do we got to do this again? You told me before that, you know, the most recent presidents, they've gone against it in what they've said. Well, when they ran for president, they did. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton, he was kind of like the last him and George H.W. Bush were kind of the last two presidents that were really kind of supervising this Bretton Woods empire. You, you forget George W. Bush ran for president. He boasted that he'd only ever been to Mexico, uh, that he wasn't going to do nation building. You know, and of course, the 9-11 happens and he changes his mind dramatically, launches the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Barack Obama, superstar, global celebrity, you know, when, when push came to shove, when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, what did he do? Yeah, make it a European issue. Uh, he didn't do anything. 
Um, and as China continues its build up, uh, you know, in the South China Sea and beyond, Obama was kind of like, well, you shouldn't do that. But really, there was no response as there had as there would have been previous to this. And then the American people, I mean, if you think about 2016, you know, the two most uh, popular politicians were Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, uh, irrespective of, of Hillary Clinton running. Uh, and, and, and even Hillary Clinton, as the campaign wound down, she was running against Bretton Woods. I don't think she had that conviction. Certainly Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump did. And I don't think Trump or Sanders, neither one of them are educated enough to, to say we're running against Bretton Woods and what started 1944 as American empire. But that's really what they were running against. And again, they were, they were a reflection of what had been going on for pretty much the, you know, the previous 20 years. Uh, and I can't imagine any American political candidate at a national level standing up and saying, we are now so excited. If you vote for me, we're going to go back and we're going to defend all of these agreements. We are going to, you know, perpetual war forever. We're going to keep our markets open for foreign goods. We're going to keep giving billions and billions of dollars to foreign com- I mean I just I don't that that ship has sailed so now with problems with the supply chain that's going to accelerate this isolationist yeah uh, clearly uh yeah, I mean, clearly, what you're saying is this this notion that uh, you know we need to we need to bring things back to America. We need to you know we need to quit defending the world. Uh, it's interesting, and we need to be independent. We need to be independent. And one of the reasons this is possible is because I think we stayed in Bretton Woods longer than we wanted to. At least a lot of the population uh, realized we needed to have uh, energy security, not just for the United States, but for the global capitalist system, which the world had had become part of. Let's let's not forget that this is not just raw politics. It just isn't about American power. There are some demonstrable uh, positive impacts with regards to the American-led system that never get any credit. We, we get a bad rap in this country. I'll just give you one, one statistic. If you look at the, the notion of extreme poverty, this is where mo- the vast, vast majority of human beings have lived throughout our time as a species on this planet. Hopelessness, helplessness, lack of uh, the next meal security, lack of uh, physical protection, uh, housing, all of these things. Hopelessness. Let's just call it that. That's where everybody has lived almost exclusively throughout human history. And even at the end of World War II, 75% of humanity lived in extreme poverty, which the United Nations measures today at about $2 a day. If you're making less than $2 a day, you're in extreme poverty. That was three quarters of the planet in, in 1945 when the war ended. Today, even with COVID and the numbers gone up for the first time, it's less than 10%. Less than 10% of the world lives in, in, in extreme poverty. People probably argue with you about that, but yeah, that definition. Right. Well, again, I'm using the UN standard. The point is, if you look at the trend line, not the headline, it's moving in the right direction inexorably. You have more and more people have ascended out of extreme poverty into the working class, middle class, life expectancies. Uh, and, and this is a direct result of the fact that the United States has led this system that has ensured greater prosperity through trade, through commerce, and through peace. When was the last time major nation states went to war? It was in World War II. So we've, we've lived in, in this incredible period. Don't they say that if, if two countries have both have McDonald's, that yeah, they, they don't go. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Sure. And so the, and this has been paid for and underwritten by the American taxpayer uh, without our vote on it uh, for the last 70 plus years. And I think the American people are tiring of it. And again, to go back to the, the point I was making earlier about energy security, a lot of us realize, and that's why we went to the first Gulf War, it was about energy. I mean, George H.W. Bush said, we need to protect the oil supplies for the world. This is the mother's milk of capitalism and prosperity and poverty reduction. I mean, this is very important stuff. Uh, and so the United States had to stay engaged. Well, now that we've become energy secure, I don't want to use that term energy independent. I think that's a misnomer. We've certainly become energy 
secure with the fracking revolution that nobody predicted, by the way, uh, 12, 15 years ago. If we want to be. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If we want to be. That gives us breathing space to be able as a nation to say, hey, we don't we can decouple from this international system that we've created. And that's got the world totally freaked out. Right. And I know you've written a lot about fracking. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. Trump had kind of loosened regulations and which was enabling people to invest in fracking. You say fracking is not profitable unless there are private companies subsidizing it at this point. Correct. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's we've, we've invested probably now to date in the United States private capital about a trillion and a half. And I'm not a big fan of Barack Obama. I want to give him credit though, because in his first State of the Union address, Obama was very scared, as his predecessor George W. Bush had been, and even uh, Clinton had been, and, and H. W. Bush about the fact that we were so dependent upon foreign energy for our survival. But that that was a big Achilles heel for us. Yeah, particularly when the people who are holding you hostage. Most of them aren't friendly. Right. And then they're supporting people who fly planes in the World Trade Center. So that's, you know, that, there's a lot of, you know, disconcern there about, you know, are we really as, as viable and powerful as we think we are? And so Obama voices the concern and the fracking revolution really begins to take up position under his uh, administration, particularly his second term. And Obama, you know, left of center, has a lot of environmental folks uh, that are really against carbon at any level. When given the option, what are you going to do? Are you going to stop this? Look to be a very interesting, very exciting, innovative path for, for American carbon extraction. Are you going to stop it? He encouraged it. He told the EPA to back off. He put it to the states under the federalism system. And then, uh, you know, Trump comes in and as a business guy, he kind of puts it on steroids. But again, the, the American government, and I know we get wrapped up in the political discussions, even Biden not drilling on foreign land, or I'm sorry, on, on government land, I realize that, you know, that's neither here nor there with regards to probably the overall impact of shale production. The Keystone Pipeline, you could argue that was, that was a step in the wrong direction. A lot of industry people will tell you the Keystone Pipeline, we've moved on from that anyway. We're building other pipelines pipelines in other places. Uh, so that really wasn't as needed. It's in the political context that it gets lost. My point, though, is, is that we in America put in a, a trillion and a half dollars in private investment capital to build this infrastructure for the fracking revolution. And it's not going away. The infrastructure's here. The reason I think we've seen a lot of energy pressure recently with, with gas prices and, and natural gas, as well as oil, is China was trying to gather up so much natural gas uh, when we realized the pandemic was probably not going to be an end of the world event. Uh, so lots of supply was going to China. They were paying whatever price they wanted because they're, they're energy vulnerable. Oh, so it wasn't, that, it wasn't that we were fracking less. It was that China was buying all of ours. They were buying everybody's. And we were fracking less because we were because again the capital you need to sustain the industry with the capital and when people quit driving last year why is the capital divesting because of uh government no i i think it's just it's the wave of capital flow and and you're seeing already capital flow coming back into fracking it's coming back but it it, it almost stopped because of, of the pandemic and then when we started coming out of the pandemic china took this very unilateral position we're going to acquire all the natural gas we can get remember, fracking is primarily about natural gas. They went they went after it big time. Oil's an element too, but they wanted the natural gas because they knew that there was going to be this shortage. And we are now an exporting nation. So the United States was exporting more natural gas. We were chasing the cheapest. Uh, and that was leaving us a little bit more vulnerable here at home. But that will stabilize. I are think the environmentalists who supported Biden 
are they hindering him from allowing the fracking that arguably we need to continue? No, I, I think the, 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 the ship has sailed in terms of government involvement. I mean, this, this has really become a state issue. Uh, it's been a state issue for a long time. Federal government can do things in terms of, of tribal lands, in terms of federal properties. That's where you'll see the political battle fought. And maybe with regards to approving international pipelines, although that is even, I think that's just a political discussion. Uh, in the end, it's going to be capital flow, supply and demand, and profitability. Yeah, that was my other question. Is it profitable yet? Well, it's it's one of these things. I, I kind of I call it uh, in the book I wrote. I called it the Amazon model. I mean, let's remember that Amazon for the first I don't know 17, 18 years of its existence never made money. That was the thing. Investors kept buying Amazon stock, really on the hope that one day it got more powerful and bigger that it would eventually turn a profit, which it has in the last several years. But for the vast majority majority of Amazon's history, it lost money. And investors still applied in because they were betting on the hope of the future. And the, the exciting thing for me when I looked at the fracking book is that we have laid the infrastructure with this trillion and a half dollar capital investment of pipelines, of cracker plants, of knowledge, of information sharing. Uh, I think big data is finally starting to come into to fracking. So when we go back and look at the wells that, that have already been fracked, we can do them again. Is this what we'll use to power electric cars? Yeah. Natural gas more than anything else. Yeah. Overwhelmingly. If there was enough investment, then we would not be dependent on Saudi Arabia or OPEC. Yeah. And we're really not. But so I'm, yeah. I'm trying to understand. So you can't really blame Joe Biden, for instance, for fracking being hindered. It's really just private investment. It's, it's, there's bigger forces involved. And again, it's a global commodity. And so people want it all over the world. They need it. Uh, China went on that buying spree again. They just taking whatever anybody had and paying full price. So there's nothing he can do. There's no, nothing he can do really. to make it. What he could have done, and there was a call for this. Uh, people didn't really pay much attention to it. He came out and said, uh, no, he was he was being asked, why don't we stop U.S. exports? Because we're exporting this stuff now. And of course, we're exporting it to the highest price payer. And uh, he didn't do that. He, uh, he Would you do you think he should have? No, I don't. I don't. Because that kind of messes with the free markets. And it messes with the free market to a point where then you really begin to distort what's going on. So he did what he had to do when he got the oil reserves released. Like he didn't really have any choice. And it wasn't a big thing. I mean, it was political. He's a politician. You know, just like the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, if you talk to most people in the industry, the Keystone Pipeline, it's not really that important. It's a big political win for him and it's ammunition by his political opponents, uh, just like opening up the strategic oil reserves. I mean, these are things that have you know very little impact in the, in the overall picture of, of energy. All right. Thanks you so much, Andrew. And um, look forward to talking to you again sometime soon, picking your brain, I'm, I'm sure. No, it was awesome. Great experience. What a wonderful way to spend a morning. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. 